the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time for Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. Dr. Chen is the pastor at Grace Church of the Bay Area, a church committed to glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ through verse-by-verse expository preaching to learn exactly what God has revealed in His Word. Now, here's Dr. Chen with today's message. As a church, we refer to ourselves as the family of God. And we do so with scriptural precedence. In the Bible, the church is referred to as a family. In various places, we are called brethren or spiritual siblings of one another. We are part of what is called the household of the faith, Galatians 6.10, and the household of God, Ephesians 2. That's just an old word or a different way of talking about a family, the household And we understand that this bond as family is, of course, through Jesus Christ and Him alone, which makes the bond that we have with other Christians stronger than even the biological or adoptive bond that we have with our physical family. It makes sense then that often Paul refers to himself as a spiritual father to particular believers and to particular believers as his spiritual father children. The Corinthians, as we have seen, are no exception. And in our passage this morning, Paul explains his spiritual parentage or his spiritual fatherhood to the Corinthians, but for a very unique reason. In so doing, he shows us what a spiritual father is, not just in terms of his title and relationship, But more importantly, what a spiritual father literally is in his character, in his behavior, how he relates to his spiritual children. What we will see this morning is that the primary reason Paul considers himself and is the spiritual father of the Corinthians and others such as Timothy is because he was the one who led them to Christ, and that will be very important in our outline and in the passage. But as we unpack this passage, you will also see that these are traits that we all need to follow, especially if you are discipling someone, if you are teaching someone, if you are a pastor, elder, or have any role of spiritual leadership officially in the church or even spiritual influence on anyone that is a Christian. Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 17, and I'm going to read our passage for this morning. We're working our way through 1 Corinthians. We find ourselves continuing to study the uh, chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, and we're getting to the end. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 through 17 in the NAS say this, I do not write these things to shame you but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, 
be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. This morning, we are going to look at a spiritual paternity test of sorts. And perhaps, again, this morning, you see yourself as a spiritual father, a spiritual mother, a spiritual influence to someone. Maybe not in the same capacity as the Apostle Paul, but again, perhaps you are a discipler, you are a church leader, or perhaps you're just another brother or sister in Christ that is keeping someone accountable to their spiritual walk or a particular sin. Maybe you're on the other end. Maybe you have someone you consider a spiritual father, a mentor, a disciple, male or female. Maybe you're looking for a spiritual father. Maybe you're looking for someone to guide you, to answer your questions, to disciple you, to teach you. Whatever your spiritual situation may be, today's passage will be helpful for you as a believer in general spiritual parent or not, we will see these qualities as those that should be pursued by all Christians, but especially those who have an influence on other believers, which you could argue is, or at least should be, all Christians. And so very simply, as looking, looking at a spiritual father in the context of verses 14 through 17, I want to give you this morning four roles of a spiritual father. Four roles of a spiritual father. In other words, if you see yourself as a spiritual father to someone, or you see someone as your spiritual father, these are four tests to see if you, you are indeed what Paul says a spiritual father really is. Well, let's jump right in and look at our first role of the spiritual father, and that is a loving corrector. A loving corrector. I find this in verse 14. I'd like to read that for you again. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And we've seen thus far that he has written to the Corinthians and he has been correcting them. He has been pointing out their sins specifically of pride, the pride that is leading to division, a pride that exhibits a worldly wisdom, which is really foolishness for the Christian instead of the true wisdom of God. So there's a reason that Paul writes all of these things. And the goal, he says, was not to shame them. His goal is not to shame them. His goal is to admonish, and there is a difference. And as we get to verse 14, and by the way, after this passage or after the end of this chapter, you will see that he continues his admonishment because the pride, though, is the root sin, is not the only sin that we see. Or I should say the factions are not the only sin. If, we, uh, just, if you look briefly into verse 5, you, you see that there is, uh, chapter 5 rather, there is gross immorality. There's incest, even incest, a type of relationship that is considered illegal by the non-Christian Roman law at that time. And so there's a lot going on here. And he takes a moment to explain why he is confronting their sin. And you see in verse 14 a noticeable change from his harsh tone that he has carried previously. And uh, this, is, this is normal. Right? We do this. 
Uh, there are times where we are rightly so and without sinning, stern with our children because of something they are, have done. We are stern because of the severity of their disobedience or their sin. We can do so biblically without getting angry. And then we may pause if we see that they're just getting scared or tuning out or not understanding. And we circle back and say, look, son, look, sweetie, I'm doing this because I love you. I know you may not understand this, but I need you to understand and see why this is wrong. And I need to show you sternly, severely why this is wrong because I don't want you to get in trouble in the future because I don't want you to go down that path of laziness or of sin in the future. And so we kind of take them and really any discipline of children or, or even within the church must be out of love. It must be stern because we are addressing something that God killed his son for, so it's very serious, but we do so lovingly. And sometimes because our emotions and our words fail us, we actually need to stop in the conversation, change our tone and say, look, I love you. This is why I'm doing this. That's admonishment. The reality is, if the Corinthians take Paul's words to heart, they will be ashamed, and rightly so. It is good and natural for the Christian, when his sin is confronted, to be ashamed, to feel shame. But there's a difference between feeling shame and trying to shame people. Paul's end goal was not shame, and that's what he's saying. His point is to admonish. Well, what does it mean then to admonish? It means to exhort. It means to plead, even beg someone to repent. And the idea of admonishing someone is correction, which of course involves reprimanding. You can't correct someone by saying, oh, it's okay, you're all right. That's not correction. That's enabling. That's feeding the sin. So correction must involve reprimanding. And again, parents do this all the time, or at least they should. And similarly, Paul is doing so as the Corinthians' spiritual parent, their spiritual father. And it's important to understand that when you are admonishing, you are to appeal not to the emotions, but to the mind. And we've seen him do this and so from so many different angles. Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand who we are that you are lifting up? We are mere servants and stewards. Do you understand the difference between God's wisdom and the world's wisdom? He's not appealing to emotions. And this is a danger that we can often fall into. We want to stroke people's egos. We don't want them to feel shame. And so we go the opposite. And instead of reprimanding, we say, hey, you're doing all right. We're all sinners. But that doesn't help. That doesn't help. I, I found even in the church these days, the, the people that we admire the most are not those who admit their sin and show how Christ was victorious over that sin in their lives. We just admire the people. Oh, oh, he or she are so open. Look how they fail and they're so open about it. They're so open about it, but there's no change. There's no repentance. There's no 
anyone coming in and admonishing it, just, oh, thanks so much for sharing, and that's it. That is not how the church works. That is not how the Christian life works. Jesus didn't just come and preach and not die on the cross. There was a penalty. There was a payment. There was something other than emotions that needed to be paid for this sin. And so it is with admonishment. It appeals to the mind. There has to be an intellectual recognition that what is being done is sin and why it is sin. And by the way, because the Bible says so, is plenty. It is enough. There must be more than an emotional shift that's going to change next time the emotions strike up again. There must be more than an emotional reaction that you are looking for. Again, there needs to be an intellectual recognition of what is wrong and then what needs to be done. And we see Paul doing this again throughout 1 Corinthians. And to highlight the fact that it's about the mind, the word admonish in the Greek literally means to put in mind. And we know that the usage is everything we've said said thus far about admonishing. But literally, it means to put in mind, to show them their fault. Now, when admonishing, you are trying to have a correcting influence on someone. Again, Correcting is to correct because something is wrong, something is off, something is broken about their worship, their obedience, their walk with God. It is not trying to correct their feelings. It is not trying to correct according to the status quo or to worldly wisdom or even a a church culture. It is correcting towards what is right, and that is the standard of God. And so in doing this, the goal is not to cause bitterness. It's not to provoke someone to anger. That may result because we are all proud and we don't like to be corrected. But it's about correcting this person's thinking so that God is the goal. And you see, a lot of times we rebuke, not biblically, we admonish, but not biblically because we're annoyed. And so we want that person to be shamed. We want that person to repent, not unto God, but unto us. Admit what they did was wrong to us, and that's all wrong. The loving nature of admonishment in general, and also in Paul's specific situation here, is emphasized with this term in verse 14, beloved children. Not only is he reminding them of his spiritual paternal place in their lives, he is also reminding them of his love for them. This is so important, especially when rebuking the proud and specifically for the sin of pride, as Paul is doing here, because the proud do not easily accept rebuke. You come on strong, they're going to defend even stronger. And that's why it's so important that you, as a spiritual father or just as a Christian brother or sister, don't just play the role of corrector, but loving corrector, loving admonisher. You see, admonishing is also forward-looking and not just backward-looking. It's not just highlighting someone's sin, pointing out what someone has done wrong. 
you are also looking forward and warning them of the potential dangers should they continue in their sin, not only in their own walk with God, which is first and foremost, but also a a difficulty within the church, perhaps even leading the church discipline and strained relationships, ruining their marriages, ruining their friendships, ruining their relationships with their children, or just ruining their children in general. But again, first and foremost, we warn them of a strain or hindrance to their relationship with God, which is most important and starts with glorifying Him in all things. And that is, by the way, what you must be most concerned about when admonishing. We want to be most concerned about God's glory and God's glory in that individual's life. If it's just about, I just have to say something to appease your ego, to appease your sense of morality, you're not doing it right. You're not doing it biblically. If all you care about is happiness in your marriage, if all you care about is that person being a good dad or a better mother, you're not doing it right. You are not doing it right. If your first and foremost concern is you need to get right with God, not your primary concern in your heart is your own happiness or the happiness of your marriage and you know what you're supposed to say to convince them is to tell them you're most concerned about their relationship with God, but to truly believe that. To truly believe that. You see, we want, we want a happy church. We want a growing church. We want a church that meets again. We want a, we want a church that has high giving. And, and that, just, that just leads to the wrong thinking of Hey, why, why weren't you at church? Why weren't you at men's group? We, we, need, we need more giving. We need more people. We need to have good pictures on the website. We need to have numbers. You got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. If all you care about is logistics and practicalities, then you have not figured out what is most important in your relationship with other Christians. What is most important in your relationship with anyone because our relationship with unbelievers, our primary concern should be his relationship with God, right? And that's why the gospel comes first. And maybe on a side note, that's why you're lacking in your evangelism because you just, your primary concern is that they don't go to hell or that they enjoy church. Those are all great things, but your primary concern must be God's glory and that person's relationship with God. And so it is with admonishment. And with that goal in mind, what we want to see is a change in beliefs, a change in attitudes, and a change in behavior. We are trying to right a wrong in the eyes of God. So, when you compare this to shaming someone, so shaming versus admonishing, there are a couple key practical differences. And we've kinda, I've kind of mentioned these already. In admonishing, the goal is not to crush someone's self-esteem, but to bring about a realistic understanding of what's going on. And I want you to really think about how I phrase that. Because emotions are subjective. You want to give them a realistic understanding of what's going on, and the only objective truth is the Scriptures. Okay, 
Further, the goal is not to destroy, but to reclaim them for the Lord. You are a vessel, you are a tool in that particular situation of God to reclaim a straying believer. And mind you, this is not just major sins that I have to tell you about in the, in the practice of church discipline. It can be small habits. It can be just a, a, one minor outburst that we all do, but still needs to be admonished because, again, it's not about the status quo. It's about God's glory. And when we are bothered, when we are annoyed, when we have our feelings hurt, we want to destroy. We want to bash them. We want to hurt them, especially when their sin is directed at us or even worse, our spouses or our children. It's some, in some way, it negatively affects us and we get angry and in the name of admonishment, we just stab them in the back even more. We hurt them even more. It appeals to our pride and our sinful sense of vengeance. But a true spiritual father, a true loving Christian brother or sister would not do that. It's a powerful reminder that Paul sees these wayward Christians who are saying negative things about him, who are violating his teachings, who are throwing him under the bus in the eyes or to these false teachers that have come in. He calls them beloved. Beloved, a word that comes from the infamous agape. And so the first role of a spiritual father is that of a loving corrector. The second role of a spiritual father, he or she is a paternal appointee. A paternal appointee. Look at verse 15. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. As God would have it, Paul was appointed as their spiritual father. And in this case, we're talking about fatherhood in the sense of being the one who led them to Christ. And I'll talk about that more later. And we see Paul reminding the churches of his spiritual parenthood in every epistle that he writes except for Romans. And in each case, he expresses how he gave them life through the preaching of the gospel. To emphasize not only his unique relationship to them, but also the responsibility and burden of admonishing them, Paul compares his role of spiritual father to the role of a spiritual tutor here. Both are being defined as in Christ to indicate that he's using an illustration. We're not talking about biological fathers or traditional academic tutors that someone would have back then or, or the wealthy would have back then, I should clarify. But it still helps to understand what a traditional or non-spiritual tutor would be. Back then, the wealthy would have tutors for their children. And in that culture, it was a child trainer and a guardian. Usually, it would be a trusted slave who was in charge of many things. And don't get caught up on what a tutor does uh, in our society today. This person, who's called a tutor, 
was in charge of getting the children to school or to their teachers. And outside of school hours, when the child was under the authority and protection of their teacher, it was the tutor who would attend to the child, even serve as a teacher at home, which would be closer to how we use the term tutor or if you've hired a tutor, but it's a lot more involved than our modern-day tutors. Whereas a modern-day tutor, especially in America, teaches your child in a particular subject for maybe an hour or so, the tutors in Paul's day would serve more like our modern-day tutor, guardian, and nanny. So moving on to Paul's illustration, to give you a practical example, Paul is the, the, the spiritual father, but for example, Apollos would be an example of one of the Corinthians' tutors. He didn't lead them to Christ. He wasn't the one who was the, the original pastor in this context, but he came later and served as a tutor in this illustration. So we know that Paul's not speaking negatively at all about spiritual tutors. They would be disciplers. They would be pastors. They would even be the other apostles that may have come into Corinth after him. They are very necessary in the church, and Paul, in fact, has spoken quite highly of the spiritual tutors such as Apollos thus far in the letter. He is, however, making a clear distinction between tutors and fathers in the church. So in the secular culture, although the tutor was responsible for the child, and you can think of anyone that you could see that role, uh, fitting that role in our modern society, and this still applies, but unlike the teacher, the principal, the nanny, the tutor, whatever in our day, it was the father who bore ultimate responsibility for the child. This has been Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. Grace to the Bay is the radio ministry of Grace Church of the Bay Area, practicing and proclaiming the purity of biblical truth. You're invited to join them for worship service in Burlingame, Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit the website gracebayarea.org for directions and other information or to view a live stream of the service. As a listener-supported program, we ask that you consider making a tax-deductible donation so that we can continue to share Pastor Roger's teaching with you each week. Donations can be made through our website, kfax.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.